Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello, all, and welcome to today's online event hosted by the International Inequality Institute. Um, my name is Paolo Brunori, and I'm Assistant Professorial Research Fellow at the International Inequality Institute at the London School of Economics. I'm incredibly pleased to be chairing today's event uh, titled An Idea of Equality for Troubled Times. Uh, this event launches the III new research team, Opportunity, Mobility, and International Transmission of Inequality, uh, which puts together LSE scholars, a group of PhD students at LSE, and an international network of social scientists active in the study of international transmission of inequality and horizontal inequalities. Uh, today, we have three speakers, Professor Joseph Fischke, Professor Mark Ferbe, and Dr. Jennifer Sheffington. Joseph Fishkin is a professor uh, of law at the University of California, Los Angeles uh, School of Law, where he does research about employment discrimination, education, poverty, inequality, and distributive justice. He is the author of the book, Bottleneck, a new theory of equality opportunity in which he proposed a fresh and inspiring approach to the problem of fairness. Marc Flerbe is professor at Paris School of Economics, a research director for the CNRS, and professor at L'Ecole Normale Supérieure in Paris. His research focuses on welfare economics, social choice theory, well-being, public economics, and climate policy. He recently edited an influential book, A Manifesto for Social Progress, uh, which is a sort of uh, theoretical toolbox for policymakers interested in well-being of all in a sustainable planet. Jennifer Sheffington is a assistant professor at the Department of Psychological and Behavioral Science at London School of Economics. Her research focuses on the interface between psychology and society. One stream of her research examines how socioeconomic status and inequality shape decision-making, but she has also been studying the psychological underpinnings of ideology and what this means for conflicts between groups and political polarization. Uh, please uh, note that we have uh, a, a live captioner and BSL interpreter today in today's event. Uh, to activate caption, please click the CC button at the bottom of your screens. You can also access larger caption by using the link that has been posted on the chat box. If you wish to make use of the BSL interpreting, please pin the two interpreters to your screen to do this over, over each of the, the videos and click the three dots and select pin. Uh, this event will run for uh, around one hour and a half from 5 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. Our speaker will present for about one hour. Uh, and as usual, there will be the chance for the audience to pose questions in the final 30 minutes. Please do so uh, using the Q&A box at the bottom of your screens and possibly state your name and affiliation whenever possible. Uh, finally, the next public event 
uh, to be aware that the III is titled Our Countries Building Better, uh, and it will take place at 6 p.m. next Tuesday, the 8th of February. Link to the event and all uh, information about other upcoming events can be found in the chat. So many thanks again to all to enjoy the event. And I will then give the floor to our first speaker, Joy Fishkin. The floor is yours. Thank you. Great, thank you so much uh, to LSE and particular to Paolo uh, and Chico for the opportunity to speak with all of you today. I'm so uh, glad to be part of this launch of this new research theme on the intergenerational transmission of inequality, uh, which is timely, uh, it's important. I could not be more enthusiastic about this particular research direction, which I hope a number of you uh, who are gathered today may um, pursue. So the sort of good and bad news about this research area is that despite a fair amount of work over the years, the surface has barely been scratched. There's enormous depth, uh, I think, um, and complexity to the mechanisms by which inequalities, plural, are transmitted from one generation to the next. If you wanted a hard science analogy, I would say this field is less like chemistry, more like neuroscience. Neuroscientists have made some discoveries, they understand certain injuries, diseases, but they're just beginning to understand the kind of underlying processes uh, and mechanisms that interact with one another in complex ways. And the more you learn about those, the more you can actually come up with kind of sharper interventions. And the same thing is true, I think, for inequalities of opportunity between generations. So as some of you embark on this research theme, I guess I wanna urge you to stay true to the depth and complexity of the problem. Don't try to reduce everything to uh, a couple of variables that are easily measured. Even when the easily measured variable is really important, like income, uh, I guess I'm just suggesting try to be creative about finding a different angle, a different data source, a different way of looking, so you can see some new facet of what, um, sometimes I call it the how of unequal opportunity, which is the particular mechanisms that have a significant effect on making one person's life go differently from another person's. And those mechanisms, I think they are what can really give us the most insight into targets for social and economic reform. So one way for me to state this point is there are different ways to think about the project of studying social mobility and inequality of opportunity. One way is top down. You reduce everything to one macro variable like income or maybe years of education or profession. Here in the US, I have to report it's income all the time, cross-disciplinary agreement, that's all we talk about. And we can observe that to some substantial extent, children's income trajectories are related to those of their parents. And so far so good, I think actually, because there are things to be learned when you're staying up at that 30,000 foot uh, kind of level, when you employ comparisons either across time or across space, maybe across countries. The trouble uh, in my view comes when you start trying to move down from the top by taking on the literally impossible task of disaggregating the components of uh, the inequalities you observe. And so I wanna suggest you can also think about inequality of opportunity and social mobility in a different way. Instead of starting from the macro picture and trying to disaggregate down to the specifics, you can start from the bottom with particular mechanisms that cause 
people's trajectories to turn out differently. And you see what you can do from there. So this can take a lot of different forms. One uh, illustrative paper that comes to mind is an old favorite uh, by Miles Korak and Patrizio Pereno about the intergenerational transmission of employers. That is, I think this was a Canadian um, data set. This was sons working in the same place where their dad worked. And the authors found, this is pretty common, uh, and it's much, much more common among the wealthiest kids. And I think this is a helpful finding because it prompts questions like, okay, well, how can we help some other kids get some of the special opportunities that these sons' fathers are somehow obviously giving them? Uh, and there might be some uh, different policy answers to that question. Work that looks at inequality of opportunity from the bottom up doesn't have to come to a firm conclusion about how the mechanism works. Sometimes you just find a piece of information that fills out your picture of why it is that some people are zooming along the highways of opportunity uh, and other people seem to be getting off at an early exit. My university system here in California recently decided because of the pandemic initially to eliminate its reliance on the SAT standardized tests for undergraduate admissions. And the school really backed into this policy. It was a kind of involuntary experiment because most students couldn't easily get the tests during the pandemic. But the results of this experiment were important and they actually mirrored what my former uh, institution, the University of Texas found many years earlier, which is if you wanna predict which applicants might do well at your university, it seems that the best data point of all is their high school grades. Um, now tests like the SAT are not totally unreliable. They are also predictive of who will do well and adding them to grades is slightly better than using grades alone. But the UC system found that when they uh, involuntarily stopped relying on the tests, they were suddenly bringing in a pool of students that had a lot more low-income students, also more Black and Hispanic students than before. And a disproportionate number of those students were in this particular category that were benefited by this change, good grades, not so good test scores, and then actually good performance in the university. And so for those students, the test had been operating as a kind of arbitrary bottleneck that they had to pass through, but they couldn't pass through uh, to reach all the opportunities that a university degree opens up. And in turn, the SAT system itself with all of its ecosystem of expensive test prep that has grown up around it and everything um, that sort of surrounds that, it was operating to reinforce how class, race, neighborhood, uh, and so on were constraining people's opportunities so that those variables we then could also think of as the kinds of bottlenecks in the overall opportunity structure of, of the society. So why should we think about opportunities in this way, in terms of bottlenecks? Uh, this way of thinking that I've been advocating for sometimes seems to have left behind the question that we actually usually start with thinking about when we're talking about inequality of opportunity, which is, are the opportunities equal or not? Um, I've spent a lot of time in my work circling around that question. Equal opportunity is so normatively attractive as an ideal because opportunities are so important to how people's lives uh, are gonna turn out. But it turns out that actually having equal opportunity is impossible. It's not just impossible under plausible policy constraints or given resource constraints or uh, various caveats like that. It's just actually impossible. 
Um, and in part, that's because the opportunities that matter to one person are not the same ones that matter to another. And also, the interaction between our goals and preferences about what we want and our opportunities is complex and iterative. It may be because I had some early opportunity that I even formed the ambition to do the thing that I later need the opportunity to do, an opportunity that someone else doesn't particularly need or want. Meanwhile, families in any society give their children different opportunities to some extent. Uh, you can obviously mitigate the starkness of those differences with egalitarian policy interventions, which is what we should do. But even the most sweeping of those interventions can't erase the large differences and opportunities that result from the fact that families are really different from one another. It's not just that some families are richer or more educated, although obviously those things are true and very important. It's also that families are just different. Um, and so are individuals, both as children and even as adults. We all have different kinds of potential that might be unlocked by different kinds of opportunities if we're lucky enough to have those opportunities. So I argue in my book, Bottlenecks, that equal opportunity is in some ways better thought of as a species of freedom than as a species of equality, because much of what we're really after when we talk about equal opportunity is loosening the constraints that limit the lives that people can pursue, and especially in the case of people who face especially tight constraints. When we celebrate reforms that move us toward equal opportunity, uh, I think what we're usually celebrating is that people are gaining freedom to pursue lives of the kind that they value rather than having the shape of their lives dictated by their limited opportunities. And so all this means, I think we can't just sort of pick one outcome variable like income and say, that's gonna be a good enough proxy for how people fare in life. It's gonna be an okay proxy, especially in a society where money is needed to buy a lot of things. But in part, um, that's a story about how our opportunities are structured and how much we rely on money. Any one variable, even that kind of variable is gonna leave out a lot. So an income, say of twice the median income, a very good income, it might look one way for someone who's the first person in their family to ever make that kind of income, who regularly gives substantial amounts of money to help support several family members who are in a tougher economic position and who, by the way, has no inherited assets, just a bunch of student loan debts, that same income level might amount to a very different set of opportunities for someone with no uh, such family obligations, no debts, and whose parents can you know, help them with the down payment on a house. So at least though with money, we can say anyone would be better off with more rather than less. That's something. In other cases, because of people's circumstances and preferences, they just need or want really different opportunities. And I thought the pandemic made this starker um, than it usually is. When I listen to this sort of massive roiling debate around here about school closures, a lot of the arguments most sides are making are about opportunity. Some parents are focused on the developmental opportunities that in-person school provides their children, especially for social and emotional development also for academic learning, maybe their children, you know, have tried Zoom school and found it was a useless joke. Um, that's a common experience. And meanwhile, there are other children, maybe not a lot, but certainly some who find Zoom school a relief. Perhaps it was a break from the challenges of concentrating when your classmates are distracting you, or maybe it's a respite from bullying in school. And for a child like that, Zoom school is a great opportunity 
to focus actually on the learning and grow academically. Meanwhile, some parents uh, are, of course, terrified of sending their child to school because someone in their household is maybe 90 years old or immunocompromised. Uh, for whatever reason, other families are terrified of not sending their child to school because they're soon going to lose their job if they have to keep missing work to be home doing childcare. In political theory, we like to use clean, simple, clear thought experiments and hypotheticals. And I've just departed from that quite deliberately. And I've asked you to imagine a wild diversity of different circumstances, some of them having to do with specific things about a child, others having to do with specific things about a parent or household. But my point is pretty simple, just that different people need different opportunities. One of the simplest, most obviously egalitarian policy a modern society um, adopts is the policy where we say, we are going to give every child the opportunity to attend school in person. Um, at a good school, regardless of their wealth or neighborhood or race, that would be the very egalitarian version. It's almost the paradigm case of what equal opportunity policy looks like. Um, but during this pandemic, because people are so differently situated from one another, this way of thinking about opportunity ends up feeling pretty clearly way too one size fits all. Pandemics scramble different people's lives in different ways. And this creates an especially obvious need to think about how as a society, we can give people the opportunities they need given their situations rather than trying to ascertain some uh, macro question of whose opportunities are equal or unequal and making all of our conclusions flow from that. Now, to be sure, we can say some broad things about how some people have a much broader range of opportunities open to them than others. And this can be very useful for public policy. But the closer you get to trying to say what's actually equal, the more you find, I think, that you're looking for something that's not there to be found. And we shouldn't have really needed a pandemic to show us that part. It just brought the point into especially sharp relief. One of the areas I've been thinking about a lot since writing uh, bottlenecks and that I explore a little bit in the book, but just a little, is the model of disability as a paradigm for thinking about opportunity. So when someone has a disability, it's often obvious that that person is likely to need some different opportunities than somebody else is going to need. So if someone can't see very well, uh, their claim that they ought to be able to get glasses is powerful because without them, a lot of opportunities that are going to be provided that are open in front of them, like going to a school where they can't really see what's written on the board, these are not genuine opportunities at all because of the way they interact with the disability. This way of thinking, um, we commonly engage in it around disability, but not always elsewhere. So compared to every other part of anti-discrimination law, uh, our thinking about disability tends to be more individualized, less group-based, because each disability is kind of different from all the others. We don't ask questions like, what would most reduce the inequality of opportunity between the group of people who have disabilities and the group who don't? Because, you know, maybe that answer is let's put in a wheelchair ramp, which is helpful to lots of people, but irrelevant to my person who needs glasses. You have to ask more individualized questions. And it's kind of obvious that we have to ask that. So we appreciate at least today, um, just to a growing but still imperfect extent, how disability, um, rather than being some trait deep within a person, is a product of an interaction between a person and her environment. This is the social model of disability. I think it's time uh, for us to think in terms of a social model of ability as well. 
not just for people who we view as having disabilities. Because for anyone, opportunities help us develop our abilities. They give us glimpses of different lives we might want to lead. They also help us revise our preferences and values. It's through the interaction between ourselves and the opportunities that the world gives us that we become who we are. Um, okay, I'll leave it to, uh, to Mark to talk about how climate change should affect how we think about equality and equal opportunity, but I'll just close with uh, one last other important sense in which we live in troubled times uh, for thinking about these sets of problems that I think should be on the table too, which is we're living in a time of enormous public skepticism about what prior generations might have called trustworthy sources of information, which creates lots of different kinds of problems for our polity. Obviously, in a pandemic, it can be deadly. It also creates problems for equal opportunity. Uh, because often the single most important opportunity someone can get is um, just a piece of knowledge or information about the opportunity structure itself and the paths they could pursue. So many people who come from low income backgrounds in the United States don't ever apply to the fanciest private colleges, even when they would be admitted uh, because they're convinced that they couldn't afford it. Would it help them to know that there's a full ride scholarship waiting for them? You know, probably yes, uh, that might help. But what if they thought that that claim was fake news um, and sounded like a scam? If we want people to be able to take full advantage of the different kinds of opportunities their society offers, we need to think about how to give people the developmental opportunities that enable them to uh, gain the skill of navigating plausible and implausible sources of information uh, to discern, uh, you know, to develop some sense of how they're supposed to discern what's likely true or untrue. And you might say, well, why talk about opportunity here? You know, just give people this skill. But I don't think that's how it works. You know, you can lead a horse to water, but it's up to the horse whether to believe it's really water. <laughs> uh, we need to give people the opportunity to learn what reliable and unreliable information might look like developed into the kind of people who can do that. Um, and we just have to hope that people will take advantage of that opportunity. I'm talking about, I think a skill that in our time is almost a cousin of learning to read, um, but it's not something everyone has. And it's not something everyone has even had good opportunities to learn. So in our troubled times, I think it's one skill that's only gonna become more important over time uh, if we want people to take advantage of um, the opportunities that exist for them and to pursue paths that lead to flourishing lives as they define that uh, for themselves. So thanks so much. Uh, and I really look forward to the, uh, to the discussion. Thank you, Joy. Mark, I leave you uh, for thanks. Yes, so let me thank uh, the organizers and Pablo and his team for uh, setting up this, uh, this very interesting panel. And and, uh, and congratulations indeed for the, the initiatives you are taking in this new research program that you are launching. Um, I thought this might be the, the opportunity to talk a little bit about, to step back about um, the, the definition of equality and, and especially in the context of uh, uh, the, um, uh, the context of uh, not just the pandemic, but also more generally the environmental issues we are facing. So I'm trying to share my screen. Do you see it now? Yes. Uh, Okay, great. And so I try to, to look at the, the uh, nexus of uh, social justice and sustainability, and as you'll see, perhaps a little bit more than that. Um, 
So if we if we look at the recent um, history of uh, thought in my discipline, economics, and also in philosophy, and in the, the people who are really the professionals of defining uh, equality and social justice, um, it's quite um, interesting and a little bit paradoxical. So there has been this movement in economics, especially initiated by uh, Tony Atkinson and uh, Thomas Piketty, uh, of looking at top incomes and uh, because um, inequality specialists uh, were usually more interested in poverty and, uh, and, and inequalities in general. Um, but indeed, there are very interesting things happening um, at the top of the distribution. And uh, around this group, uh, you have seen the development of this World Income Data Lab, which is now also building distributional accounts. So they really look at uh, articulating a very coherent picture of how resources are distributed over the whole spectrum. Um, but in the meantime, uh, or even starting a little bit before that, philosophers, especially those in the egalitarian branch, somehow have retreated. Uh, and this retreat is quite spectacular when you think of it, because it started with Rawls, uh, who is usually branded as a prominent egalitarian philosopher. But in a way, Rawls' message to society has very often been received as saying, well, we shouldn't worry too much about inequalities, especially inequalities at the top. We should just focus on the worst off, and um, inequalities as such are, are not so important. And this has been further reinforced by other authors like Harry Frankfurt, Derek Parfit, who even claimed that equality in itself was not even a value, um, and that we should just focus not necessarily on the worst off, but the worst off. Um, and, um, and that was enough. Uh, so there was no point in taking equality as, as an objective or as something that has normative. Uh, normative uh, value. And then you have with this uh, idea of equality of opportunity, you have philosophers like uh, Richard Anderson, Jerry Cohen, who uh, said that, well, even when you look at the worst off, some of them are actually uh, guilty. Yeah, they are responsible for what happened to them. And so um, if you focus on opportunities, well, some people won't seize the opportunities and that's a tough luck on them, but um, that's not really an issue. Um, and, and, and finally, uh, uh, the nail on the coffin is coming from the relational egalitarians, who could still call themselves uh, egalitarians, but uh, like uh, uh, Liz Anderson, who say, well, we shouldn't even worry about the distribution as such. Uh, the, uh, the worry about the distribution of goods is not really uh, what we should be talking about. We should be talking about the quality of relations and about the basic dignity that we grant one another. So I'm, I'm uh, of course, I'm caricaturing a little bit the picture, right? Um, but I'm, I'm trying to make a point here, which is if you look back at this whole stream of egalitarian thinking, it's amazing how embarrassed about equality uh, this, uh, this whole stream seems to, uh, seems to be. And so if we look at the, the troubled times we are in now, um, we should uh, try to um, see if, if these, um, these streams of thought uh, in, in academia are useful or not so useful. And so I would like to talk about the challenges we are facing in our times, uh, being inspired by the work that has been done by a, a large group of colleagues in the International Panel on Social Progress, where we identify three uh, big challenges. So inequalities are indeed a big challenge and inequalities not only between countries, but also within countries, as we see that some countries are catching up the train of development, but others are still really lagging behind. 
And that is a serious, potentially explosive issue for the future. The environmental uh, destruction in general and the climate uh, challenge in particular, but it's not the only one, biodiversity, pollution. There are many fronts in which we are living beyond the planetary uh, boundaries. But there is a third challenge that I want to mention, which is the uh, destabilization, uh, if not the outright failure of uh, the democratic project. Uh, in many countries, in many parts of the world, we see a backsliding and uh, a rise of authoritarianism. And so these three challenges are daunting because they are intertwined. We really have to tackle them all. And uh, what I would like to argue is that we really don't have the possibility to say that we can uh, focus on two of them and drop another one or, or focus on, on one as more important than the others. They are really uh, connected. And to hammer this point, I'd like to present what I, um, I, I'm using the word precipice here, thinking of Toby Ord's book, but, uh, but this, the idea is that if we, if we uh, think we can uh, relax uh, regarding one of these uh, challenges, um, we are actually um, in a dangerous illusion um, and in a path that is leading us to a catastrophe. So if you, for instance, believe that you can um, uh, treat the problem of equality and sustainability by abandoning the democratic project because maybe authoritarianism can be more effective in uh, managing the transition that we need to, uh, to, to undertake. Um, well, this is a very dangerous path and it, I won't spend too much time on it, but um, I really want to warn against this uh, thing that we hear more and more uh, when people uh, look at certain countries that seem to have uh, very effective policies in certain ways, uh, relying on, on certain uh, authoritarian ways. Um, now, you could uh, drop sustainability by believing that this problem will take care of itself if we pursue uh, technological innovation and if we pursue the development of capitalism and uh, the liberal uh, institutions that we have uh, built in the 20th century, um, and essentially um, following up on this idea that we have reached a sort of end of history in terms of institutions. Um, again, this is unlikely to succeed because environmental catastrophes will catch up uh, before uh, the technological fixes will, uh, will help us. And finally, there is something that is um, more or less the situation we've been in for quite some time, which is the uh, difference of development between uh, a minority in the world and the rest of the world, which somehow is, um, is helping um, uh, solve the problem of sustainability in a, in a very bad way by uh, preventing uh, a large part of the population from enjoying the lifestyle that the affluent populations can have a very destructive lifestyle, uh, but one that is um, in some ways conducive to, to human, uh, human well-being. And so again, this idea that we could um, prevent the development of the rest of the world to preserve the planet is a very, very dangerous solution. Um, so uh, what I would like to uh, say now is a little bit more positive. And, um, and I would like to um, suggest that in fact, the uh, solutions to uh, the challenges we are facing may be reinforcing one another. And there are synergies between um, things we could do on the social front and things we could do on the environmental front, um, the so-called co-benefits uh, that uh, can really help us. And so I will just focus on two examples. 
the example of health co-benefits coming from cleaner energy that could be uh, good for uh, in many ways and especially in emerging and developing economies where pollution is, is now really a very serious um, health issue. And the other example is the idea that we could use uh, environmental policies and especially environmental taxes for social purposes. And that could uh, really make the transition uh, much less uh, painful for a large part of the population, especially the most disadvantaged part. And I would like to stress that these are just two examples that I, where I can connect with my own uh, research. Uh, but I, I suspect that these are just um, two examples and that in fact, uh, really changing our attitude to a wave and, and uh, going away from the sort of race we are in toward more and more use of material stuff and uh, a very consumerist uh, approach to uh, well-being and to uh, the goodness of life uh, could really um, save us uh, a lot of uh, pain and help us to uh, deal in a much more um, reasonable way with the environmental challenge. But let me just illustrate a little bit the two um, examples I wanted to, uh, to put forward. So the first one is about health co-benefits. And here, um, what we can see on the right-hand uh, right panel is the, uh, the situation that we usually have in the analysis of climate policy when we ignore the health co-benefits. And so if we just focus on reducing um, uh, emissions of greenhouse gases, uh, then we have the cost that are bad for the living standards of the populations. And then we have the benefits of avoiding the climate damages, the climate impacts that uh, compensate after some uh, period of sacrifice. And so what you see on the right-hand uh, panel is uh, this um, curve here, which describes the average consumption uh, in, the, in the world following uh, this uh, sort of strategy where we make sacrifices for about a century, and then we enjoy the benefits from having protected the, uh, the climate. Now, um, this same curve, if you take account of the health uh, co-benefits that come from cleaning our energies and cleaning the air that follows from that, uh, this curve now is no longer below the, uh, the origin and remains positive everywhere. Because when we incorporate the computation, the value of health into a large measure of uh, living standards, uh, in fact, it turns out to be, uh, to be uh, overall good. I'm not claiming that uh, there is no sacrifice to be made, to be made by anybody. Uh, some people will indeed uh, have to make uh, some effort uh, for some time, uh, but overall, the average situation, it looks much better when you take into account the, uh, the health co-benefits. The other example I wanted to uh, suggest is when we think of making use of environmental taxes. So if you think of the simplest example, the carbon tax. Carbon tax is quite unpopular, uh, and especially in my country, we had a sort of social rebellion with the Yellow Vest movement against the introduction of a quite explicit carbon tax. Um, but we could use the carbon tax as a source of funding that can uh, be um, uh, paid as a sort of uh, uh, refund to the people uh, so that they would, at the end of the day, not be uh, less rich than, than before. They would just face different relative prices. So energy, and especially dirty energy, would be more expensive, but they would not be uh, poorer than before. And so this use, this social recycling, as we call it, 
of the carbon tax could actually uh, make the large part of the population better off. And so uh, here is an illustration for different regions of the world where we look at the bottom quintile of the population in, this, uh, in these 12 regions. We've been using a model that has been um, created by William Nordhaus. And so now it's, uh, sorry for the reversal, it's on the left-hand side that you see the situation where there is no recycling and so no social co-benefits. Um, and on the right-hand side, now you see what happens to the bottom quintile consumption when we do this recycling. And so for uh, about half of the century, or even more in some cases, uh, actually the bottom quintile of the population is a net beneficiary of the policy. Um, it's only at some point that for some regions of the world, the situation gets less good, but that's at, at a period late in the century where the bottom quintile is much less poor than it is now. And so if there remains some sacrifice at that time, and so why does there remain a sacrifice? Well, simply because the decarbonization exhausts the tax revenue that comes from the, from the carbon tax. When there is no longer any uh, emission, there is no longer any carbon tax revenue. And so that's uh, what, uh, uh, so this is only a temporary uh, solution to help um, uh, make the transition less painful. Okay, you have the same kind of graph here. Uh, it's uh, maybe the colors are not so good. I apologize for that. But the, what happens is uh, this is a computation in terms of social welfare, where we compute a consumption, but uh, with some greater weight put on the consumption of the lower classes. Um, and so it's a summary for the 12 regions of what happens. So not just focusing on the bottom quintile, but on all, all uh, income strata. And the, uh, the solid curves correspond to the case in which recycling happens, and the dashed curves correspond to the case in which there is no recycling. So same picture, uh, it looks much better when we do the recycling. Okay, so I'm uh, now uh, close to my conclusion. So these are just two examples, as I said, but I'd like to come back to the uh, initial question, which was in our troubled times, how to solve the, the problem of uh, the environmental um, degradation and the inequalities uh, that remain important. Um, so social justice and sustainability. Well, what I would like to suggest now is um, that we should even step back a little more and, um, and take some distance even from these goals. And, and the reason is the following. If you think of social justice, social justice is something that is important, but it's a sort of basic condition. The society cannot be just focused on fair sharing uh, and leave it to um, private lives, private individuals or private families or circles to define what the good life is. Um, because a good part of our lives involves public goods and common experiences. So we have to collectively decide what we want to do together. And this cannot be left to private decisions in a completely uncoordinated way. And so we have to ask ourselves as, as a global society, what, what is our plan as a group? What kind of life do we want to create for, for ourselves? What kind of collective project do we want to, to invest in? Um, and so this collective project, I submit, it cannot just be peaceful coexistence, right? So somehow the idea of social justice is we would like peaceful coexistence. This is so dull. Okay, imagine someone proposing to another to marry and say, I hope that we will achieve peaceful coexistence. What a boring life. That, that's not a project for, for a good life. And so um, Rawls said that justice is the first virtue of a society. What I would like to suggest is that this should not be considered as the last one, right? It should 
We should really expand our views. And the same story applies to sustainability. And you all know, I'm sure, the Brutland's uh, definition that comes from the report on common future, which is focusing on, on making sure that future generations can satisfy their needs. Their needs, so that's so dull again, right? What about their dream? And so uh, here again, this is about preventing something bad, preventing a catastrophe. And it's definitely not about uh, planning for the better. And so uh, in both cases, justice and sustainability, we have, we are now more and more focusing on the worst and we seem to be forgetting what we should be uh, aiming at. And so what I would like to suggest, be a little bit provocative, is that as important as justice and sustainability are, and especially in the challenges we are facing now and same for democracy, we should stop focusing on, on these things which are essentially minimal. We should dream about the best possible. We should really focus on defining it, visualizing it, and aim for it. And, and maybe that could stop the sort of gloomy pandemic of thinking in terms of there is no alternative, right? This famous Tina thing uh, that has that has essentially infected us in the last decades and that, that has killed any sort of utopian thinking. So let's come back to more constructive things. So that's my proposal uh, to start the discussion and I look forward to, uh, to the conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks, uh, Mark. It's, it's, it's great that even the title you were able to finish with some with some hope. So, uh, Jennifer, Dr. Jennifer, she is Captington, please. The floor is yours. Thank you. I'm also very excited that this equality and um, opportunity, this mobility and opportunity theme has started up, and grateful to be invited today. Um, I suppose. What, you know, one reason why I'm here is to kind of to complement this um, normative focus and this excellent focus from expertise from economics with a little bit of a subjective focus um, in terms of um, drawing on some empirical findings from psychology. I'd like to do that in two ways today. I hope I have time for it. Uh, first is to focus on choices and the notion of um, constraints on choice and in particular what that means for equality of opportunity. And then the second to think about values. What are the kinds of societies that we want? So perhaps that um, somewhat um, echoes or, or, or aligns with, um, with the focus also of the two previous talks. And then I'm going to try to bring them together and, and in doing so talk you through um, three different areas of my research. So first, when it comes to choices and equality of opportunity, there, I mean, as already I outlined a little bit by the previous speakers, um, there is this notion that what, what we need to do is create an equality of opportunity. And certainly from a look egalitarianism framework, if uh, after that um, springboard, if people still choose to, be to behave in ways that harm their long-term life outcomes, well, you know, that's our fault. There's nothing really we can do. They are kind of morally to blame and they shouldn't morally expect to be able to get ahead as well as others. This actually, um, th there's a discourse that echoes this in, um, in public discourse and in um, a lot of political debate too, especially around decisions and behaviors associated with um, those low in socioeconomic status. And that's particularly the group of interest here when we're thinking about trying to enhance social mobility. So um, for example, if people are choosing to eat unhealthily, if people are not investing in education, if they're not spending their money the right way, um, then surely there's little else that we can do and they must be to blame for any poor socioeconomic outcomes that come with that. And what I wanna to try to encourage you to do is to think about how free these choices are and, and they might not be free in, in two different ways. Um, one more explored than the other. I think the one that's been quite well explored is the notion of a, a narrowed choice set. Um, so it might be that people 
genuinely don't have the opportunity to purchase healthy food because healthy food is much more expensive than unhealthy food or that they are not able to invest their money well because no bank will allow them to open up a bank account. And if we put aside those, and um, if we put aside these situations of constraint, there's still an extent to which there may be some free choices, let's say between um, eating food that costs the same, that's healthy versus unhealthy, um, or even choosing to smoke a cigarette, which costs money, um, that, that people nevertheless are able to make, and yet sometimes in certain circumstances seem to be making in ways that are seemingly deliberately harming their life outcomes. And where my research comes in there is to really encourage people to think about context, to think about such situations, not from the perspective of um, academics as we are, which by definition means that we're at least middle class, and to try to get ourselves into the context of being under the kind of socioeconomic strain um, of the people we're claiming to want to help. There are a number of different aspects of this context that I think are particularly important, especially psychologically. One of these is, is the most obvious, scarcity. People don't, don't have enough resources, um, especially in terms of not having enough money to be able to um, guarantee shelter, for example, perhaps facing eviction from a rental um, property. Another is unpredictability. And that might be instability in your home situation, but um, more and more these days, it's unpredictability in income, especially to the extent that precarious work um, is occupying more and more of, of the labor market. And then another is what I'm calling, I keep changing how I'm talking about it, um, but for our purposes, social unreliability. Effectively, that you can't lean on others and you can't rely on others to be able to help you. Now, this has a few different components. One of them is the importance of low relative social status that we know is very salient for those uh, low in socioeconomic status, especially in um, more highly unequal societies. And there's evidence that these, these, these um, negative uh, upward social comparisons are enhanced in, in more unequal societies for those at the bottom. Then there's also a sense of not being able to participate in society, right? So not being part of society and um, societal exclusion and we know that uh, exclusion from a group is very um, psychologically impactful in a negative way. And then there's the extent to which if you're lower in SES, you're more likely to live in what we might call a stressed social ecology. You're more likely to live in an environment where others are also um, dealing with socioeconomic strain and sometimes uh, to the point of desperation, such that there is social breakdown and there aren't um, there isn't a stable enough environment for people to be able to um, help each other and trust each other to cooperate. Now, when the circumstances play out, and, uh, and this has been studied not just by me, um, but by others uh, who've really, we've taken an experimental approach to this. So we've tried to get middle income participants to experience some of these um, 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 cues, um, even momentarily in studies, um, whether it's scarcity, unpredictability, low relative social status, we find a number of things come about. There's a kind of a psychological shift that happens. One is that people feel that they, um, their sense of perceived power or control goes down. Um, and the most important way that manifests uh, to me is in believing that your behavior doesn't impact your life outcomes. So it's not less self-efficacy, thinking you're not able to do what you want to do. It's, it's a lower uh, perception that your behavior actually matters. Another is that um, people shift from a focus on the long-term to a focus on the short-term. And that might mean neglecting long-term goals. Another is a decrease in optimism. Um, and uh, we also find lower levels of social trust. And you can see how this might play out and, and, and how this kind of package of, uh, of um, psychological symptoms actually might make a lot of sense. I mean, to the extent that uh, your behavior really doesn't matter for your life outcomes, to the extent that things are so unpredictable that you can't, that you can't invest in the future in a rational way, and, it, and to the extent that you're facing a lot of pressing immediate threats, 
it really is adaptive for your whole mind to shift to focusing on the here and on the now and what you need to do within the here and now. And in that context, when, why would you um, give up on the opportunity to have, a, let's say, stress relief from a cigarette or stimulation to keep you awake if you're working uh, two jobs, um, as opposed to thinking about long-term health goals that are being told to you by, um, by health behavior health promotion types. And similarly, academic performance, you might perform worse, especially on um, academic tasks that are designed without any relevance to um, the kind of threats that you're dealing in your life. That's another thing I've looked at. And you might even do unwise financial decisions such as buying a lottery ticket. Sure, that's that's kind of the worst investment uh, of gambling technically, but it's also sometimes the only accessible way that somebody can dream for an alternative life. So I think that the psychological shift that we see and the kinds of decision-making patterns that come out of that, and sometimes we can even see these decision-making patterns, as I mentioned, in middle-income people temporarily put into these situations, are actually quite rational in context because they're adaptive to um, the context, which is, is radically different in ways that it's, it's hard to imagine unless we experience it. And even though these decisions might make sense uh, in, in the immediate context, they still will harm someone's social mobility. They still will make somebody um, perhaps less healthy later in life, less well uh, invested in, that, in, in education. They won't have um, money saved for their kids' college fund. Does that mean that they're to blame for that situation? Um, or I, I hope you will agree, does it mean that we need to think um, in more particular ways, especially uh, as, um, as uh, Joseph has been encouraging in his work about the particular situations that people are facing um, and how uh, the free choice is not such a such a simple thing. So that's the choices side of things. I'm just going to shift gear over to another side and then hopefully be able to connect them. The other is the idea of values, right? So I, psychology also has something to say about what the idea of equality might mean for us. And it has, we have a set of social cognitive resources with which we come to understand the social order. And we have to understand that the social order is a very complicated thing. It's, it's um, these kinds of large scale societies are not the, the societies in which our social cognitive architecture evolved. Um, and when we think about these big um, normative questions and what kind of a society we want, all we, are, all we can use are these basic social cognitive mechanisms. And what I think might be going on, and this is in work with Lotta Thompson at University of Oslo, is that we're using, um, in particular, the social cognitive mechanisms that evolve to help us navigate different kinds of social relationships. And the idea of there being um, fundamental kinds of social relationships is actually an idea from anthropology coming from the work of Alan Fisk. And he's looking at this mostly in the interpersonal context. So his survey of, of uh, cross-national research um, finds that the most basic kind of social relationship we can have is, is a communal one. This idea of us, uh, people living in a communality, um, most obvious in the family. And there is a certain set of moral principles that fall out from that. It means that we're all, all for one, we're all in this together, and that we give to people according to what they need. When we're in a communal relationship, we're not counting who's getting what. And we also give uh, according to ability. Another one, um, that's um, slightly more complex is the notion of hierarchy. You know, even within a family, there is a notion of hierarchy. And there may be some situations where authority and giving um, right to make decisions um, is best left to people who know more. But also, it's not just authority that comes with being high in a hierarchy position. It's also preferential access to resources, preferential access to rights and, and access overall. 
And um, the most appropriate example for how we might um, legitimize the uh, hierarchy would be in a, let's say, in an organization where we understand that our um, CEO is going to earn more than us. A third is equality, um, what FIS calls equality matching, and that's um, what we might expect to play it among our peers. And there, the whole psychology of reciprocity and turn-taking is here. And each of these um, basic relational forms, we know, um, well, there's emerging evidence right now that, that they're present very, very early um, in, in young children, even in infants before they can speak, which is why I refer to them as, as evolved. So reciprocity and evenness, what equality matching cares about is thinking about people roughly having the same and also thinking about um, equal contributions in a rough sense. So let's say if I think about this with my friends um, I help you move out of your house and then you, maybe you cook me dinner. You're not going to actually pay me for helping you move out of the house. I'm not going to pay you for the dinner. And we don't precisely try to count exactly who's contributed what. There's just this rough sense of, of reciprocity. And what falls out of this is inequity aversion, which is something quite observed in the behavioral economics literature. The fact that people will give up on um, money resources so that they can avoid extremely unequal outcomes in distributions between them and another person, um, especially if there's distributions of windfall resources and there's no prior information about, um, about who should get what or why one should get more than others. And we find this both in terms of us not wanting to get less than others, but also um, very common in terms, commonly in terms of us not wanting to get too much more than others. The last of the relational models is um, what FIS calls market pricing, what we call proportionality, because proportionality helps get a better idea of um, what, you know, what are the moral principles um, that holds there and, and how does it play out. And it's really a notion of quantifiable deservingness. So people should get according to precisely what they put in. And the best way to figure out precisely what someone has contributed is to have a, a kind of a third um, neutral currency, which, which is where the term market pricing comes from. And it's effectively um, the language and the logic and the principles of market exchange uh, where we can quantify exactly what someone has contributed and perhaps is the closest to notions of equity as well. So what Lotta and I are arguing is that when it comes to, so all of this was the interpersonal context, but then when it comes to um, making up our minds about the kind of society we want and specifically about the kinds of policies that should hold in that society, that uh, the individual differences we see between people, and we always see the stable ideological individual differences, reflect stable individual differences in the preferred application of one of these relational models from the interpersonal context to the societal context and the preferred implementation of that model through specific policies. And we've looked at this particularly with uh, egalitarianism um, where we pit hierarchy against equality. And we've looked at this in terms of looking at the influence of genetics, the influence of early childhood experiences, and even more ecological influences, um, such as uh, the levels of inequality of the society that you're living in. Um, we, in terms of, you know, what kind of policies might be mapped onto these, I mean, you could probably guess, but uh, one thing that we've most recently looked at were policies related to the pandemic. So, for example, um, applying communal sharing when thinking about uh, distributing limited resources in the pandemic around vaccines would be um, vaccines should go to the neediest first. Most countries followed that principle. Um, some said that vaccines should go to members of Congress first. That would be uh, hierarchy. Um, or if we think about um, perhaps the financial support that was provided uh, to help people in the pandemic, an, an example of an equality matching policy would be everybody getting the same. So, for example, you know, the checks that were sent out um, um, from uh, central U.S. government, everybody getting the same amount or perhaps even universal basic income. 
And then, but the more proportionality-based one is something like the furlough scheme actually in the UK, where people are getting in a proportionate to what they were earning before. Um, so it's proportionate to their perceived uh, contribution to society. And so what we find is that um, when we, um, through self-report scales, um, measure people's preferred application of these relational models to the societal context, we do get these stable individual differences that do predict um, preferences for these kinds of policies and predict things that people have been finding hard to predict, such as support for populism and various um, um, alternative forms of democracy, and also parochial forms of egalitarianism, so wanting to share more within the country, but not outside the country. Um, I won't go into the detail of those findings. Um, I also uh, think that they're important to think about um, the power of particular political platforms and political speeches to think about what is the relational frame that they're using and to the extent to which perhaps that resonates with the relational frame that the population is using. So that's a little bit of the, uh, the subjective side of values. Now, how, how might we think about ways of, of these coming together? I'm only starting to bring this together now because these are two separate streams of my research. But one thing that I think is particularly important is that the feeling, the subjective feeling of low socioeconomic status, it depends on the relational frame that you think is applying in society at large, or that you think most people think is applying in society at large. And that's because it's being low in SES or being socioeconomically excluded is not just about this material microecology that you're living in and the, and the, the needs that you're uh, that you're trying to meet. It's also about a sense of, of who you are in society and of how you're valued by society and of what you're contributing to society. And if a particular frame is dominant that focuses on your uh, contribution and wants to quantify that very precisely, um, for example, in social insurance models of, of welfare, then it's going to feel particularly bad to be at the bottom of society as opposed to alternative framings that we've actually seen come in um, with the pandemic, such as we're all in this together and um, some related um, uh, quite ambitious policies that have come out of that. With Ganga Schrieder, I'm, also, I'm particularly looking at how um, the experience of the pandemic and, all, and in particular of these strong lockdowns have shifted um, the way we are talking about things, both from terms of focusing on I to focusing on we and kind of perhaps unlocking this more um, communal way of thinking of the collective. Now, what I suspect might be happening is that when we think about, so what I'm saying there is that the experience of low socioeconomic status might be particularly difficult to the extent that the fourth of these frames, right, the market frame, um, holds and is most consensually holds. The last area of research I'll talk about is, is one that's um, early, with early evidence is, is showing that we're seeing the encroachment of this market framing beyond its conventional spaces in, the, in politics and economics and into our subjective sphere, right? Exactly as Thatcher said, you know, economics is the method, but the object is to change the heart and the soul. This is uh, one of Margaret Thatcher's famous ones. So what do I mean by that? Um, what I mean is that the very way that we, I, I come to think of myself and others and my role in society becomes marketized, becomes kind of seen through this sense um, of self. And, and in particular, that that mindset that I was talking about earlier that we're expecting from um, those low in socioeconomic status, so having high perceived control, focusing on the future advancement, being optimistic, being trusting so that you can lean on others, um, that can kind of go to the extreme um, if you're internalizing these market norms to the extreme. 
So um, with Sabrina Paiwand, I've developed a, a measure of this, a measure of this marketized self, um, where what we see are um, distinct dimensions that map onto those uh, that I've talked about. We see the unrealistic um, assumption of power or responsibility. So saying um, whether you endorse items such as, you know, it's down to me and me alone to make the right choices in my life. An obsessive pursuit of self-advancement, always thinking about ways to get ahead, for example, always making sure that you're maximizing the product, your productivity by measuring every single moment of your day. Um, that a focus on optimism can turn into what might be called a toxic positivity, always wanting to focus on net positive things rather than negative things and not dwelling on, on anything negative. And that this leaning on others can turn into an instrumentalization of others. So we have items such as um, investing in friends is like investing in anything. You need to think if the cost is worth the benefit, right? So these are these market thinking items. And actually a lot of these items I would find myself endorsing. So a lot of this is, uh, is something that, that, that we can all recognize. What we did when we, when we um, administered this scale to um, a diverse sample um, from the UK, two different samples, we found that for everyone, regardless of, of socioeconomic status or gender, it predicts perfectionism, and we know that um, perfectionism can be quite um, problematic psychologically. Narcissism, also Machiavellianism, which is the exploitation of others, and a, a whole range of, of suboptimal social media behaviors. So social media addiction, the objectification of the self, spending a lot of time perfecting your photos before you post them on social media. Um, obviously, um, we were particularly focusing on that, those uh, measures among young people. But in particular, then, among the socioeconomically marginalized, we also oversampled those low in SES. We found that uh, the more they endorsed this kind of marketized self, the more shame they felt for their socioeconomic position, the less they felt identified with their social class. And, and so that kind of self-blaming and, 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 and shame and the negative effects of shame might also be an additional barrier to um, being able to make the right choices um, that are expected, even within um, some egalitarian models. So perhaps this discourse that we are pushing on people is not only poorly fit to the context in which people are living, but it's kind of unwittingly ideological um, and it's actually bad for all of us. And, and going back to Marx's um, um, really ambitious and really impressive aspirations, sadly, you know, this relates to decreased uh, support for the, sorry, increased support for the status quo, thinking society is more fair, and also um, decreased political engagement, both efficacy, interest and political action. Right now, this is all correlational data, so we can't speak to causality, but that's absolutely what we're planning on doing. I don't think that that bodes well for the kind of grand projects of social progress um, that we might want to work toward. So just drawing it all together and um, some conclusions um, that we might uh, draw from some of this empirical work from, from social psychology. Um, I would suggest we should interrogate notions of choice uh, to give a fuller appreciation of the power of context, that we consider relational frames in building our political projects and also in responding to the political projects of others and figure, trying to figure out uh, how they gain traction. And then be alert to how a particular relational frame, market thinking, might have kind of crept into our own very sense of self and might be um, coming to dominate how everyone is thinking of society. Um, and to just reflect and talk together about you know, what the benefits of what that might be or may it, where it might be starting to lead us astray. Okay, I'll leave it with that, Tyler, thanks. Yes, thanks, uh, uh, Janet, and thanks to uh, your very insightful presentations, very different, but very in different ways, but insightful. Uh, I will now open the floor for, to questions from the audience. Um, please use the chat uh, and write your name and affiliation whenever it's possible. But first of all, I will uh, give the floor to Asif Bhutt, 
uh, one of the animators of the PhD working group on social mobility. Uh, that is an important part of the newly uh, born research team at the International Inequality Institute. So, Asif, the floor is yours. Yeah, thank you. Um, first of all, thanks to all the speakers for these great presentations. Uh, I'm Asif, I'm a PhD student at the Department of Sociology at the LSE, and together with my colleague Fiona Gujescu, I founded the doctoral research group on inequality and social mobility. Our group is also part of this new theme at the III, and we are a kind of forum for early stage researchers across all the departments at the LSE working on issues around inequality of opportunity, meritocracy and social mobility. Um, with that being said, I actually have one question for Professor Fishkin, if I might just start off the Q&A. Um, I found it really interesting what you said about the importance of knowing about opportunities or the opportunity structure. Um, what do you think could or in a way should be the role of research here with regards to spreading knowledge about opportunities to those who might be deprived of them? Thanks, and, and I'm uh, I'm glad that you're that you're doing what you're doing as, as a graduate research group. Um, I don't think there's one answer to that question. Uh, I think there are a lot of lenses uh, for studying it, but um, one of them is certainly just to ask people. You know, there's there's a uh, there's a um, a book that that I um, that that made a real impression on me from, from maybe now 25 years ago that was asking, uh, let's just get a little bit behind the question, what do you wanna be when you grow up? Uh, and with questions like, so if you wanna be a doctor, which is a pretty common aspiration among people of all classes, including from classes where people are not likely to be a doctor because that's a profession that most people encounter in you know, Western society. And uh, if you ask, well, so how are you going to do, do that if that's what you would like to be. You have uh, people who are, you know, maybe teenagers who uh, will give you answers that there are things like, well, I'll start, you know, working in a hospital and kind of work my way up. You know, there's just sort of a no sense of the stuff that a middle class child whose friends are all professionals, I mean, kids, you know, like, could get uh, the kind of information about, well, there's medical school and in the US that's after university and we have this whole system and you should probably study math a lot, even though that doesn't seem to have anything to do with being a doctor, you know, all of this kind of stuff um, is, is useful. So, yeah, so in part, I would say just ask, uh, but another set of uh, questions, you know, you could, you could answer by um, in a sort of more sociological way of uh, where are people um, I mean, in, in relation to, to some of the things that, that Jennifer was, was saying that I thought were really uh, provocative and interesting that, you know, uh, you, could, you could try to inquire, where do people get the sense that they should pursue one of these, uh, you know, kinds of paths where you have to invest a ton of years of education and then have this uncertain future payoff that requires incredible amount of long-term thinking and support from family and friends. You know, I think there's a lot of, of more sociological um, and maybe social site kind of context uh, that it would be useful to research too. So I think there, there's the good news, uh, right? Is there's a lot of answers to your question. 
because you're asking about an area that has been insufficiently um, explored in multiple disciplines. Thank you. Thanks, Joseph. Uh, I, I have uh, two questions, one from Mark, uh, for Mark and one for Jennifer, both from uh, Mike Joff, uh, LSE alumnus uh, at the Imperial College. Uh, so I'm going to read both so you can then answer. Uh, can Mark please tell us more about the best possible to aim for? <laughs> uh, this has some, sometimes been done, but tends to be elitist. Um, for example, that enjoying poetry or opera is superior to other enjoyments. How would Mark express this best possible? And then the question for Jennifer, <clears throat> Does psychological evidence support the notion that people's limited material resources restrict the bandwidth of their thinking and action as has been suggested? Who wants to go first? Maybe I, I, I could, uh, since it's the easiest question to answer. Um, so, <laughs> uh, I was, I was really thinking not so much in terms of, um, of individual achievements. I was also thinking in terms of collective achievements. Uh, and um, um, think of uh, just one example, um, the, uh, the um, collective intelligence we are achieving uh, through um, the distribution of uh, competence and knowledge uh, in various uh, professions and skills and uh, complex organization of society. Um, this is not exactly a conscious design thing. It's an emergent uh, phenomenon coming from a complex economy and a complex society. But, um, but if you look at it as an achievement of human society, then we can ask the question, uh, what do we want to do with that? Do we want to invest to, into more of it? Uh, do we want to develop it into certain directions, like more science or more arts or more culture or other things, more... Um, a more uh, uh, high quality social relations or things like that, uh, more connections between people in the, in the right uh, productive way and uh, something that's, uh, that's really making people flourish. Um, so so my, my point is, it's not so much to say that um, some experts should tell us what's the best, especially what's the best for an individual, but more about the fact that we should have a collective discussion. We should have a democratic uh, debate uh, about uh, what, what our place in history is and what we want to do with, uh, with our um, abilities and resources. And if I may uh, add one consideration, um, we are, as a human species, placed in a special position because we also, in a way, have to answer this question, not just for ourselves, but for the whole community of living beings because we are somehow in charge of that because we are so impactful, right? So whether we like it or not, we cannot just retreat and, uh, and leave the other uh, living species uh, quiet. Unfortunately, we have to take responsibility. We are now putting plastic everywhere in the world and, and things like that. So we, we have to, um, uh, to assume responsibility in a very uh, broad way. And we should ask the question, not just about our collective project as a human, Species, but uh, what about a collective project for life uh, as a whole? Okay, um, on the other question. Um, yes, uh, yes and no. Um, so I would say um, the original work uh, that focused on mental bandwidth, um, some of the attempts 
to replicate that work. I think you're referring to Anud Shah, Sandil Molinathan, and Elder Shafir's work um, weren't wholly successful, but there, um, the, but there, what there have been successful um, replications of the finding that um, momentarily experiencing scarcity does seem to shift cognition in some way, and it did seem to make people um, more likely to uh, decide to make decisions in games that privileged. And what they were doing right then in a current round at the at the cost of what they were doing in later rounds and um, how i think about this and how i think of some of the more interesting work focuses on this is in terms of what's really going on cognitively there and um, is it about bandwidth and of course there must be a bandwidth question there's a there's a bandwidth dimension of this to the extent that um people facing a lot of pressing financial needs and made to think about them don't have the mental space to then think about you know filling out a college application form or what medical school requires um, but I also think that it's um, it's not just um, uh, a loss of cognitive capacity. I think it's a shift in cognitive focus. Uh, and some of my own studies have uh, looked at that uh, by by changing the cognitive tasks and looking at what they what the task focuses on. We've had people experience scarcity in food by fasting for 12 hours, and then we presented cognitive tasks that either involve um, food stimuli or don't. And we find the predicted worst performance in the, in the scarce, scarcity group where the stimuli don't involve food. Where the stimuli involve food, people are performing just as well and sometimes better. Um, so it's not that their brain is shut down, their brain is just really focused on the resource that they need right then and there. And there's some other interesting work from the field of behavioral ecology, also looking at how growing up in adverse environments might lead to um, the downregulation of the development of the kind of cognitive skills that, to be honest, aren't that useful in those environments, such as what we call inhibitory control, the ability to hold off on grabbing a resource now for the sake of one in the future, but perhaps the upregulation of the development of of cognitive skills that are particularly helpful um, in unpredictable environments in particular, such as cognitive flexibility, being able to shift from dealing with one set of issues to dealing with another set of issues. Um, and that's what, what might be called the hidden talents approach to looking at um, cognition in adversity. So there's a lot of exciting research uh, going on in this area. And as I mentioned, some of it's in behavioral economics, some of it's in social psychology, some of it's in behavioral ecology. And there's a really nice convergence between those fields. I hope you'll check it out. Thanks, thanks. Uh, so now I will uh, abuse my power. I will select one of the questions from the shop because it's one question that I, I wanted to ask and it's for, uh, for all of you. So Simone Marino, uh, LSE alumnus and social policy specialist at the European Commission, asked to all panelists, what are the main political action that the political movement should support to bring about the idea of social and environmental justice? that you discussed. For example, what do you think about the introduction of a universal basic income as a tool uh, to free people and redistribute economic resources? Joseph, do we want to start? Well, sure, although actually this relates quite a bit to, to some of Mark's uh, really uh, interesting points in the middle of his, of his talk. I think the, uh, the promise of UBI um, you can look at it a few different ways. If you're interested in just sort of improving people's welfare, I think it's a pretty good way to do it. There's been a lot of research suggesting that that works. Um, but I also think we should be able to think of it in terms of, um, of freedom and in terms of opportunity. You know, uh, having money creates, it's not just an outcome. <laughs> it also creates possibilities of what you could do 
Uh, and I think you've really seen that. I mean, the United States embarked on this kind of monumental unplanned experiment in uh, nearly universal basic income. It's a bit means tested, but more or less universal basic income during the pandemic. And the results were really interesting. I mean, they suggested to me not only increases in well-being, and they certainly greatly reduced poverty and food insecurity and that sort of stuff, but also um, people started to think, you know, uh, I see this related to one of the other questions in the chat. People started to think maybe I could change jobs. People started to think maybe I can afford to be out of work for a couple of months uh, as I try to switch from what I'm doing to doing something that comes closer to my idea of a good life, you know? Um, and that kind of freedom, uh, basically redistributing more broadly the opportunity that people who come from, you know, uh, an upper middle class or wealthy family background already have, which is that they could rely on their family if necessary to help them through a tough month or something like that. Um, distributing that broadly is very powerful. It affects labor relations. It affects people's ability to say, you know, this pay is not good enough. I'm going to strike. Um, it really changes a lot of dynamics and I think an interesting egalitarian direction. So. Um, anyway, that's uh, not a full answer to your question, but I'll stop because I've talked enough. I think I think the uh, the potential of UBI goes goes well beyond uh, improving welfare. Um, yeah, if, if I may, so Clement, this I, I totally agree with Joy, and um, I, I think it's it's um, in a way um, it, it's amazing how how much we know about solutions. Uh, so the, the main political actions in, are not so difficult to define. If you want to tackle environmental degradation, um, you should uh, essentially penalize either through regulation or through uh, pricing mechanisms, um, taxes and things like that, the uh, harmful behaviors and subsidize research and help in, in technological innovation that, that would uh, make uh, things easier in the transition. Um, and, and do things that uh, I suggested. So you should connect the various um, aspects of these policies with, with social, uh, social impact as well. Regarding uh, distributive issues, um, uh, yeah, so the, the typical talk in this field is to say we should combine uh, redistribution, things like UBI and, and more ambitious uh, things in terms of uh, perhaps also capping top incomes in some ways and so on. Um, with pre-distribution, so making sure that the, the market incomes themselves don't start being very unequal, because then it's, of course, it's a lot more work to, to make uh, the final uh, after-tax uh, incomes, um, uh, after tax and transfer incomes, uh, less unequal. And so how do you do that? Well, uh, there are various interventions can be, that can be done uh, in the market. Pro-competition policies <laughs> can help, um, but also um, and this connects to the third challenge, um, democratizing organizations. When you have uh, uh, more horizontal uh, and more democratic organizations in the business sector, uh, then you have much more uh, socially responsible attitudes uh, and even also more uh, environmentally responsible uh, choices in, in, in such uh, firms. And so um, democratizing the economy is, uh, is part of the, of the pre-distributive uh, policies that you can that you can make. Um, 
I totally agree about the fact that UBI is, uh, is something that is uh, impactful in many ways. And especially, so people sometimes uh, think in terms of uh, that is that amounts to giving money to everyone. It's not quite the case because in fact, what you want to do is to fund that and you have to fund it by taking money away from other people. So we don't want to, to uh, essentially uh, spoil this thing on the rich people. But, um, but the key thing is for the disadvantaged people, this is really uh, something that comes in terms of uh, security, safety. Uh, so Jennifer was talking about unreliability and sort of truth. So this provides people with the, you, you can avoid having to wait for help because you receive the check before, you, before the administration checks it if you have to pay taxes, right? So it reverses the, the burden of proof in a way, it reverses the time schedule of the transfers of money, and it's it's a whole uh, difference for for the, the poorest people. Um, so maybe I, I should let Jennifer say more about that because it's. Uh, it's maybe I mean, no, I, I think in terms of that, those microecological factors, you're absolutely right. All I'd add on top of what's already been said is that there's also something happening. There's also a signal being received to someone when you're receiving something, just by virtue of being someone who lives here or even, even a citizen, let's say, something that everyone is getting. And, and the psychology of means tested versus universal um, income, welfare programs, healthcare, I think is, is quite understudied because I think that each time, you know, each time I partake in, in, in using the NHS, I'm, I'm using something that everybody uses as opposed to, um, you know, walking outside uh, uh, or queuing outside a job center where I'm kind of very made aware of the fact that I'm receiving this because I'm somehow failing in the eyes of society. So I think it it, it, it also triggers this relational frame of the equal worth of everyone and of us all being in it together and enhances uh, inclusion in society from those at the bottom in particular. Thanks, uh, thanks to all of you. Uh, I like to to finish with a, with another question for for, um, for uh, the three of you and, and then you may uh, you may uh, conclude with some final thoughts uh, because then it will be it will be finished. Uh, so, uh, Kevin Ryan from France asks uh, to all: Does the great resignation that is taking place in some Western countries coming out from the pandemic signify something new in terms of individual perception of inequality and social mobility? Joy. Sure. I mean, I think it may. I certainly think that it reflects, um, people have described this great resignation in a lot of different ways. Certainly for a lot of workers, uh, being jolted out of uh, just being able to continue along in their work because of the disruption of the pandemic seems to have led a lot of people to a realization that they weren't doing the right work, <laughs> that they needed to be doing something else. Uh, and that, you know, working 80 hours a week at a, uh, you know, in a restaurant for the amount of pay that they were getting was not looking actually like a good life. And I really, I think that that's a wonderful development that people somehow, as a result of a terrible thing uh, that happened to us all collectively, um, had a little bit of individual space to think about their own lives. Now, some people had a lot of individual space, some people had too much, some people feel depressed. There's a lot of complexities to this story, but I think the uh, overall, what the, what the big churn of jobs and the big resignation suggests to me is that a lot of people were more stuck um, than, than one would like uh, before. And so I, I see it 
in a positive light. I don't know if people's perceptions of of the sort of paths open to them um, and the mobility that they'll actually experience has changed. But I think that at the least, um, a lot of people's perceptions that they can achieve a better fit between the life they want and the and the work life that they have uh, has improved. Maybe I can share the results of a survey we've done in France during the lockdown of last spring. Um, and we asked, uh, so there were many questions and. Uh, I could add uh, with another colleague, we could add a question about whether people felt that um, during this period, uh, they, came to, um, uh, they came to terms with themselves in, in a more authentic way, uh, whether they, they uh, discovered more about themselves or whether it was a distraction, something that essentially alienated their, their, their life from what they, they wanted or from themselves. So, so whether they became more that more of themselves or or less themselves, so more short term, short term. And the overwhelming answer was uh, was positive that people thought they were um, more more conscious of what they were, what they who they were, and what they wanted to do. Um, so that may um, go in the direction you were suggesting. Not to put a dampener on it, but uh, I. <laughs> I do notice that I think a lot of this is uh, ends up, and maybe even a lot of um, equality of opportunity uh, talk is very much focused around individual freedom and and individual choices. Uh, and there's a lot of good reasons why that's the case. Um, it's very Western, and uh, so it's very particular to particular cultural context. But it's also a sign of a particular relational frame too, maybe where we are seeing ourselves as by ourselves and perhaps as not quite as consumers, but I, I think uh, the consumer mindset is, goes into more areas than others. And, you know, I, I think it's great to the extent that people can reflect and then leave a, a job that's not um, working for them. Um, but if it's always, if, if solving issues with workplace conditions are always about individuals deciding if this is for them and then leaving a job and then moving to a new one and everybody individually making choices that's better or worse for them as opposed to thinking about well can we come together to try to improve these conditions can we come together to try to think about society more generally I suppose I would be a little bit more um, excited about that um, but perhaps there's potential there still in this in this moment of pause as you were saying Mark and reflection. Okay so thanks I think we we are at the conclusion of this public event, so I'm, I'm, I really would like to, to thank you. Uh, it is very hard to start uh, an interdisciplinary uh, research team that is really interdisciplinary because often it's, it's difficult to understand each other, but I think today was a great uh, exception and I really feel that uh, it was a fruitful conversation, inspiring for, for many of us. Um, so let me uh, thank you again, the speaker, for presenting today and the audience uh, who joined us. Uh, if you want to hear more about LSE and in particular about the International Inequality Institute activity, please follow the link that you can find in the chat. Uh, you will find the list of upcoming events uh, and you can then uh, subscribe the newsletter, etc. Until we meet again, hopefully not virtually. Uh, thank you to all of you and goodbye. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. 
We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.